This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. To the highway, in a brand new day, gotta let it go. So Welcome back to Open the Voice Gate, Rewind and Rewatch, Episode 5, covering The Ultimate Gate, 2010. We are members of the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. You can find our podcasts on the Voices of Wrestling feed or on the dedicated Open the Voice Gate feed. We are on all podcast platforms and apps of your choice, and we're on Twitter, at Open Voice Gate. I'm one of your hosts, it's your old pal, Iron Mike Spears, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Case Lowe. How's it going, Case? Stressed out, Mike. It has been a stressful few days and the low compound. A uh, lot going on in my life right now that's not super positive, but I'm safe. I'm healthy. That's the stuff that matters. Uh, it's a, a time of change for me and a time of change for Dragon Gate USA. And there is so much to talk about this episode. Yeah, it's kind of wild that we've now been, this is the fifth episode of this. And in a lot of ways, it's kind of been our weekly or bi-weekly uh, a mental health check on, on each other <laughs> that like now i'm i i had like my points of despair now i'm like i don't know if i want to call myself full on black build but i'm kind of like okay this is happening i'm making sure like my provisions are stocked up with my states being real dumb and i'm just like well i'm all in this for ourselves and certainly gabe sapolsky and dragon gate usa were all in it themselves over the first wrestlemania weekend of dragon gate usa that's a really weird simile in a way to compare these two, but I feel like it's kind of an apt case. In a way, Dragon Gate USA was warning us for the future. I, they I mean, really 10 years. 10 years. were ahead of their time in a way that not even Gabe could have predicted. You know, Supercard of Honor 2006, Blood Generation, and Doofix are walk behind the curtain. Gabe says this is wrestling five years ahead of its time. The promotion as a whole, Dragon Gate USA, just ahead of its time in so many ways, in so many chaotic ways. Yeah, yeah, and we've spent a lot of time on this promotion really singing the praises of a series of matches and one guy in particular. Of course, we're talking about the the dumbest jock jock of them all, the purveyor of meat versus meat wrestling, a guy who cuts incredibly dumb promos, Davey Richards, but Case, it is time to say goodbye to Davey Richards in Dragon Gate USA. Michael, on January 26th, of 2010 and this is three days after the fearless event in chicago illinois on january 26 2010 drang 8 usa announces bb hulk versus davy richards for the open the freedom gate title on march 26 in phoenix at the as games of pulse you know it's at the first class celebrity theater it is followed by an announcement the next day that Jack Evans will be exclusively wrestling for Dragon Gate USA on WrestleMania weekend. 
Evans is no stranger to the Dragon Gate style, as he has been on many tours of Japan, as Gabe Polsky notes in his GGUSA Newswire. And he asked the bold question, what will Jack Evans do in Phoenix? It should be noted that on the January 28th Dragon Gate USA Newswire, uh, Gabe notes that the Freedom Fight pay-per-view received a 100% thumbs up in the Wrestling Observer Newsletter poll. That is the second straight DGUSA pay-per-view that has gained 100% thumbs up, which is unprecedented in the 30-year history of the Wrestling Observer Newsletter. And that DGUSA also was all over the prestigious 2009 Observer Newsletter Awards uh, Gabe notes, these awards are voted on by the most knowledgeable fans and critics. I, okay. Um, <laughs> Open the Historic Gate one show of the year. Open the Untouchable Gate finished third. And the Open the Untouchable Gate uh, had the number two match of the year with Shingo and Davey and the number four match of the year with Naruki Doi and Brian Danielson. So before we get into the chaos, before we get into everything that unfolds, it should be noted that although Dragon Gate USA is struggling to maybe get people to return to these cities, maybe it's not catching on on the on-demand cable uh, pay-per-view buying experience the way Gabe had wanted it to, they are selling merchandise, they are selling DVDs, and they are critically acclaimed in a way that very few wrestling promotions really had ever been up to this point. Yeah, and this is something that we kind of talked about on the first episode, that before there was the huge like PWG boom that really started in 2014 but lasted approximately to like 2019 this was in a lot of ways the critical darling promotion and it was like kind of like a precursor of what the boom would be so when we make the joke about Gabe saying that Dragon Gate was 10 years ahead of time and the DGUSA was ahead of its time it really was in a lot of ways but it just was something that with this was coming out of the Great Recession. I mean, you're starting this promotion in late 2009. You you are also dealing with the fact that the indie marketplace drastically changes very quickly on Gabe, especially after seeing that he was in what I would consider a pretty insulated scene within Ring of Honor. But, I mean, he went from, like, being so insulated Ring of Honor to then showing up to Chikara shows, like, but even before DGUSA happened. So, like he was in a completely different world and actually before we get a little bit into the Davy things we, we i didn't talk about this during pre-production but i realized i had this note here that kind of gave you the sense of where dragon gate usa was was this is jumping ahead a little bit but this is something to keep in mind when we talk about these shows one of the, th- the big things about the show about dragon gate usa and something we've talked about case was that they needed about 500 people at each show to break even and then they're making the money on the dvds and the pay-per-view it is released on March 15th, 2010 in The Observer that Dish Network dropped the Dragon Gate USA shows going into the Fearless pay-per-view, their fourth pay-per-view there, which saying, which was something that was pretty notable because they said that it appears that at the level they are is enough to maintain. We're told that the pay-per-view is at least some money, decent check coming in each month. The DVD sales are very good and they're moving merchandise well. But selling tickets has been harder than expected but that goes for everyone in the business, but that isn't WWE. And that's something that we have to really keep in mind here, especially as what the standards are and what the, like the break-even point was for these shows, at least at a certain point. Now now the game's starting to change and switch up on them, and this weekend is the first weekend that they have a back-to-back show. And I think we're just so far along in our in our timeline that it's easy to forget with the existence of All Elite Wrestling 
and the indie boom that came before it of PWG selling out in seconds and Wrestle Circus and AAW and these super indies becoming not only prevalent, but prevalent in a way where they're able to draw live gates that it was it, it, it's uncommon. I mean, it's a rarity in the landscape of American professional wrestling since the 1980s, I guess 1990s, because, you know, up until WCW dies, that companies are able to make money or at least have, you know, the shot of making money through their live gate. And that is something now that, you know, we're seeing AEW when they're allowed to have fans in the building, they draw really respectable crowds. But, you know, TNA was never really able to draw in the States outside of one or two pay-per-views. You know, they dominated the San Antonio market for a few years. The lockdown show with uh, Kurt Angle versus Samoa Joe, I believe is still their most attended show in the U S but they were never a company that was able to get people to come to the building in Gabe Sapolsky for as brilliant of a booker as he has been at times, has never been able to get people into the building unless he's using NXT-branded talent. Yeah, and I don't know what the exact number was, but for Ring of Honor in and of itself, going across its history, it was a promotion that about 1,500 to 2,000 was topping off for them. And even with like the NXT things, like the the biggest grossing shows for, for Gabe, I believe, were was Joey Janela's Spring Break 2. You know, like that had 2,300 people there and I was in New Orleans and you could see the big difference between a couple of the WWN shows and then Joey Janela. So like it, it's something that's kind of been the story of his entire career is that he had issue getting people in the arena, even though he's able to say these critical fans like it. We had 100% thumbs up with Dave Meltzer. He got the Wrestling Observer Book of the Year Award for four years straight and the first two out of the first three Dragon Gate USA shows were considered some of the best shows in 2009, and had one of the, the top had the top match of the year and had the number four match of the year. So there is a disconnect that's happening that I felt like that is worth bringing up now. Before we, I didn't mean to completely side sidetrack us about our Davy talk here, but this is something that, as this is happening, I feel like this is something to keep in mind. January 29th, 2010 a tweet from the Drangate USA Twitter account. Effective immediately, Davey Richards has been removed from all DGUSA and Evolve events. I have been advised not to make more comments now. That is followed by a statement on February 1st, the DGUSA Newswire, which Gabe Sapolsky writes, Wesley Davey Richards is no longer with Drangate USA. Open the Freedom Gate champion BB Hulk now has an open contract for the March 26th event. Hulk says he wants the toughest, most skilled opponent possible. He guarantees a title match that you will never forget. Uh, and then goes on to do all of his plugs. So we are now at a point a week after announcing the main event for your flagship first ever WrestleMania weekend shows. The American that you have built your promotion around. The American that has drawn the most eyeballs to the promotion, the American that has had the best matches in the promotion, is now gone. And unfortunately, it wasn't as simple as just a tweet, and it wasn't just as simple as a peaceful goodbye. Things would get much more intense. The February 15th, 2010 Wrestling Observer Newsletter has the bulk of this information where it says and we'll do this in the in the most concise way possible, that Davey was earning $350 per match for regular Ring of Honor shows and $250 for the television dates. Uh, when Gabe Sapolsky started using him, Gabe was trying to use less and less Ring of Honor talents when he started up his new groups, both DG USA and Evolve. 
fearing that there would eventually be some sort of retaliation or some sort of contractual dispute. But Gabe had offered Davey $500 per shows to be the top star. So not only is Davey working uh, Dragon Gate talent, he's going on Dragon Gate tours. And there was an entire promotion that was initially based around Brian Danielson. Well, who was the successor to Brian Danielson? Well, it's Davey Richards. So Davey was financially compensated for attempting to make the jump to Gabe and then was creatively rewarded, at least in theory, for those ideas. According to Gabe Sapolsky, he thought Richards only had a contract that related to Ring of Honor television, which, as I said, makes sense uh, because he didn't want a problem like this to arise. Ring of Honor had always maintained Richards was under contract to them, although the contract wasn't exclusive and they never attempted to get Richards to not work for Drangate USA or Evolve. Richards was told after Drangate USA advertised Richards only appearing on their shows that a Ring of Honor was going to attempt to get an injunction to pull him off the shows. His contract, which didn't expire until April of that year, was not exclusive, but Ring of Honor believed that they had priority on his bookings, particularly when it came to to a rival group running head-to-head. So let's pause here for just a second. Yeah. And let's take a look at the independent landscape because Ring of Honor is not in a great position at this point. Adam Pierce is booking. They're on HGNet, but things are not going well. And wanting to protect a top star like Davey Richards, if you have any sort of written agreement, I can't say I blame them for wanting to prevent Davey to work for Gabe's side. Yeah, and... I last night compiled a ridiculously long doc of basically the whole entire thing. And the first like mention they have of Davey and Drangate USA was they were under the belief that there was no contract. However, ROH isn't saying anything negative about it. So it seems like at least my read of the situation was that when he agreed to come aboard uh, WWN, as I'm just going to call them, it's just easier. That's what they're called now. I think... Gabe and Sal Hamawai were under the impression that there was just not going to be a big deal. And this kind of continues. Uh, the Observer c- talks about it two weeks later that he is under contract here. And everyone seemed to be like out in the dark. And this kind of is a real depiction of the uh, landscape that Ring of Honor was in. Something that I, I pulled that I really wanted to talk about. This actually is from uh, Brian Alvarez in the uh, Figure Four Weekly from August 25th, 2009. This was about when Danielson signed, and it said that the that Davy Richards was rumored, and the rumor probably got started because Danielson's ROH contract expired, and he was scheduled to work the Drungate show next month, since Richards also scheduled to be on that show. People assumed that he wasn't on contract either. This is an important point because someone on the WWE side noted that WWE, even if they're keeping keep close tabs on the shows, were not going to make offers to anyone under contract in a wrestling company in the United States. Of course, the WWE source added, there's been a few blunders where Johnny Ace's incompetence creates situations that wasn't the case. But right now, WWE isn't really even aware of Ring of Honor. Yeah, that is a very damning look at what is supposedly the number three in America in a company that, again, it's not like Ring of Honor was a hole-in-the-wall indie. It wasn't your local VFW joint. I mean, it's, it's Ring of Honor professional wrestling, and they're on TV, but... We're still six or seven years from the the indie boom, or I guess the signing boom, rather. I mean, Brian Danielson signing with WWE was more of an anomaly than the trend at this point. And so the idea of Johnny Ace, who I think anybody listening to this at least knows his signing patterns, it doesn't surprise me that Johnny Ace is not sitting down and watching his HDNet tapes. I mean, it makes sense that the independent landscape is 
purely independent of that, that idea of working towards a contract is is more of a pipe dream than it is a, a means to an end. Yeah, and I didn't include this in to my document, but there was like a comment made about when Danielson signed, it was more of, well, I guess this is the time I sign. <laughs> it, it wasn't necessarily like he was such an aberration that like, he was going to apparently end up with a WWE contract sooner rather than later, which also makes sense given who his trainers were and the fact that he was under WW, I think it was WWF at that time, contract and the uh, when he was in Memphis very shortly. So it's such a weird thing. And then we talked about Ring of Honor being here, but living through like this time of the Indies, and especially like as someone who was not in the Northeast, someone who was not in the West Coast, someone who was not even in the Midwest there were only a couple indies that were really, really making making waves and that you would read about and people would post about. You get people post about like their local stuff. Like I remember hearing of WXW from the people from Europe tweeting about it or not, wouldn't even tweeting, posting about it. But really you had Chikara is probably at its business peak at around this time. It was getting constant coverage. Uh, IWA Mid-South was on the down end of the slope, but... The, the idea that like Smart Mark Video was such a big deal at this point was that you had all these promotions that were through Smart Mark Video, and that's how you got the DVDs. I remember always going for the twenty five percent off sale. You you buy four and you basically get your you buy three and you basically get your fourth one free, and that was such a big deal then. But the landscape was so different then, and where people were and the gulfs between promotions is really worth noted because at this time. Even after, like, especially being on VNW talking about this, it seems really well to talk about. Even after, like, the peak of Gabe Sapolsky's era, there was a huge gulf between even Ring of Honor and TNA at this time. And it's something that only really changed, as you said, like the last three or four years. Yeah, loyalty and just the way that is looked at in America has certainly shifted. In Japan, it's another story. And back to Davey, another key factor of him choosing Ring of Honor over Dragon Gate was Davey, who had recently gone on a tour of Dragon Gate, which we talked about in the last episode, uh, was leaving the promotion in Japan because he was booked on the upcoming Best of the Super Juniors tournament for New Japan and was hopeful at the time that it would lead to regular tours, which indeed it did. So all of this transpires and Davey ends up telling Gabe at the January 22nd AAW show uh, that he's pulling out of the Drangate shows in Phoenix because he signed a new contract and he can't work them for legal reasons. He also told Sapolsky at the show that he wasn't going, going to be doing any more tours of Drangate because he was going to be in New Japan. He said that he signed a new contract because they gave him a raise to $500 per show and Ring of Honor would be running more than Gabe would, which, which makes sense. So there immediately becomes... A bit of an issue here because Drangate does not like, I guess, Drangate has a very specific way of doing things. And when Drangate was made aware of the situation, they did not want Masaki Mochizuki doing the job, losing to Davey the next night uh, to someone that was leaving not only their company, but was moving to a rival Japanese company. Uh, But Gabe talked them into it, saying that the match would air on the March 5th pay-per-view, which would help set up Davey versus Hulk and Phoenix. Davey would job on the way out, the way business is supposed to be done, and everything would be okay. But Drangate was not happy about Masaki Mochizuki losing the title, and as it turns out, they had every right to be because this is something that we still see in Dragon Gate, perhaps more so than any other company in Japan at this point, of this idea of loyalty is really, really crucial to them. The The reason that Mike and I made such a big deal about Ultimo Dragon working last year 
was because none of us ever thought it would happen. I mean, we got Shuji Kondo versus Masaki Mochizuki in January of last year, and that blew our minds. We never thought we'd see Kondo in a Dragon Gate ring again. The idea of loyalty is so ingrained in the Dragon system. I mean, TNA at this point, TNA had offered Naruki Doi and Masato Yoshino contracts, and Doi wanted to go, but he, he couldn't face his friends and his peers in the locker room and, and couldn't face them and say, okay, I'm actually going to go here now. So for Davey, who, you know, David Richards is a lot of things and he, he thinks for himself and Davey made a move for himself rather than for the organization. And Drangate was clearly upset at that. Yeah. And this is something that we will kind of get into when we get into really 2011 and 2012 DGUSA. But there's a system at least with how, Dragon Gate views the Gaijin and how really Japan views Gaijin that it is acceptable like and they expect that okay like dating back to like Bruiser Brody that Gaijin won't necessarily say faithful unless they come up through our dojo or they spend a lot of time there and become members of the family and Dragon Gate was at this time I believe and I know it, it's especially is of the time now was a collaboratively run promotion it was basically the big joke for a long time was that Ginky Horiguchi was always the person in the Observer Awards as Dragon Gate Booker when he was really not the booker. He was just the, the guy that would tell the Gaijin what the uh, results were or what the bookings were. So that's why they, they extrapolated that as when in reality, it was a very collaboratively done company. I mean, people... Well, are, it still is. I mean, the yeah. roster sets up the ring and tears down the ring, to my knowledge, and it could be different now, but BB Hulk is the one that runs merch and you see the guys almost like an independent promotion. Uh, if you follow any of the Drangate accounts, mainly the office accounts that are on social media, you know, you'll see UT and BB Hulk and, and Yosuke Santa Maria, whoever else covered in sweat and cork and hall after their match, but they're at the merch table, they're selling t-shirts and it's not that independent contractor spirit that the Indies have, but it's the collaborative effort that they are all buying into this company vision. Uh, and it's, it's, I can see where people would maybe think that's, you know, lower rate or minor league to have your guys selling merch, but it's just the way Dragon Gate operates. Yeah, and the way it, it operates like that because this is a promotion that was built by Ultimo students. When they struck out on their own, the only office figures they had were Takashi Okamura and Toru Kido. And, like, the music people and, like, the ancillary people, but the people who were, like, really in charge of it, like, the big thing was that that's why Madden got fired because he was in charge of something and he was caught misappropriating money. Like this was a, a I, I make the joke about it, but this is the, for a lot of ways. I, I'm not necessarily sure if that's the case now with now the fact that Okamura never owns, does not own it. I don't know exactly how the percentage is now with Gaora now, but it's a collaboratively run thing. It's closest thing I think I've heard of, at least for like a major promotion that must be communally run. So it does look different than Pro Wrestling Noah at that time, or especially New Japan now, where they have the whole Bushiroad machine behind it, because this just is not how this company's ever run, because it's how the company was founded. So I think that's also the big thing there is, especially for someone like Davey, who in a three in a two-year period would have worked for the three larger promotions in Japan at the time. He In 2009, he finished up with a Pro Wrestling Noah. He had that one tour of Dragon Gate that we talked about in the last episode, and then he'd be working for New Japan for the next three years. So he he necessarily, I mean, he was there for, I think it was 13 days, Case? Like 13 days he was there and gone. Yeah. 
So, like, there's no realistic thing that he would get the sense of, okay, this is how this promotion operates. Well, and also just everything we know about Davey just as a person, which is not a knock on him, but, you know, Davey is someone that would show up late to indie dates, was checked out of wrestling even by 2010, had shown signs of not really wanting to be there anymore, was always contemplating quitting. And the idea of showing up early and stretching with the group and then putting up the ring and then tearing down the ring and then selling merch like Davey Richards is is a robot in a way where he is programmed for himself only. Whereas, you know, Drangate operates in a in a machine like way. But it's again, it's that collaborative effort. All of these parts come together to make one. Davey Richards is his only part and his brain is a fascinating place that I would love to explore more and more. But it's clear that he in ring stylistically and both his personality do not mesh with Drangate, which is why you can maybe hide that and you can maybe get away with that in Drangate USA. I think as time would have gone on, Gabe would have had a harder time managing Davey and getting Davey on the same side as the Japanese office had they continued to work together. But it's why we made such a big deal last week about this Davey Japan tour, because it just doesn't make any sense to knowing the two sides. It's, I would really love to know more about how that came about because it's a fascinating two-week period. Yeah, and we even got a letter from Davey and, and this observer that I kind of want to touch on. And it just is one of those things where he talks about how he knew that the lawyers could get involved and that Gabe and Sal knew this and they told me that the lawyers could fight for me, give me out my ROH obligations. Whether or not they could, I don't know and I don't care. I didn't get into wrestling for legal battles. If it was up to me, I'd gladly do both. And it's just very Davey, kind of like how his mindset is. And there's a lot of like background in this one observer. I think that the published date of this is March 15th or February 15th, 2010. So this is one of the lead stories in Observer. It's one of the few times that Dragon Gate USA is one of the lead stories. So it's definitely worth checking out because there's a lot here that kind of crystallizes how everything is. So I think we were on this or were we talking about one of the gay posts now. Yeah, I mean, it's it's at a point now where they had both threatened lawsuits and they had both talked a big game. And then at the end of the day, Ring of Honor had a written contract and, and they had more of more proof than Gabe did, who Gabe, you know, wrote a lengthy MySpace post in the middle of February talking about how. 95% of the time, his trust pays off. He's a guy that likes to trust people. He had been working on verbal agreements since 2002, and he understands that things happen. Guys get injured. Planes don't take off, whatever. But at the end of the day, Gabe advertises people on shows. He expects them to be there. And I just – Gabe – is a fragile human being himself. And that's not an insult to Gabe. I mean, <laughs> no, I'm, no. I'm, I mean, I, you know, I blew up in a, in a zoom call today. I, I yelled at a bunch of people over zoom, which is humiliating, but it's, it's what happens. Um, I have defended Gabe for a long time because I, I understand why he is the way he is to some extent. And I don't know him personally, but just his public persona, I empathize with it to an extent because I understand where he's coming from a lot of the time, even if he is wrong. And this is a situation where he's ousted from Ring of Honor. He has this new promotion, which is in a very weird spot, like we talked about at the top of the show, where there's critical praise, but he's already struggling with the business of it. And his guy that he had pushed all of his chips in on was now no longer working for his promotion. I understand why Gabe would be upset. I mean, it makes sense. So like I said, both sides talk a big game. 
no lawsuits end up coming out of it. But Davey is confirmed not working for Dragon Gate USA again, and and Davey never works another DG USA show. I've got a little bit of a blog post from Gabe Sapolsky here, the MySpace article that I just mentioned, where Gabe says, that's it, it's over with, it's in the past. I learned from it and will be better in the future. The focus is now on Evolve on March 13th, and on Dragon Gate USA's first double shot on March 26th and March 27th in Phoenix. March is going to be one heck of a month, Gabe says. I started working on new lineups last night, and we have some exciting stuff in store for you. If TNA didn't pull the talent in 2004, there would have been no generation next. If Steve Carino made the Chicago booking, there would never have been the five-star Samoa Joe versus CM Punk match, which in turn led to my favorite all-time moment when Austin Aries defeated Joe for the belt two months later in Philly. It isn't about what happened in the past now. It's about what you make of it for the future, and I promise you the future is going to be very exciting and memorable. So... Gabe saves face to an extent. I mean, he is clearly motivated by this to put on a better show and to book stronger cards. Whether that happens or not, Mike and I will discuss. But we are now at this point where Davey Richards is firmly in Camp Ring of Honor. And there is a tension between Drangate USA and Ring of Honor that lasts through Drangate USA's entire existence. Yeah, and this is something that if it wasn't going to be Davey, I bet there would have been another person that would cause this tension it was just natural gabe was someone with that promotion from 2002 to 2008 the uh, person that he, one of the people that he, that he found to buy the promotion after uh, rob feinstein's scandal and doug gentry passed away was still in control of the promotion at that time there's still as we talked about in episode one that that firing was not a pretty firing so this was going to happen, Case. Like, I don't think I'm I'm off base in saying this. Like, there would have been, if it wasn't going to be Davey Richards, other than Davey being his own unique cat, it would have been someone else. So No, I, there's too many combustible elements at play, because if it's not Davey, it's Kevin Steen, or it's El Generico, or it's Tyler Black. It's guys that are, you know, very opinionated and are... are players in the way business is done you know not everybody can be chris hero and just magically work in between the lines and and seemingly become everybody's friend this relationship was going to blow up sooner rather than later and it probably was going to blow up this weekend because up until from 2006 to 2009 it was ring of honor was the alternative for wrestlemania weekend and then gabe as the person who was booking ring of honor is like hey dragon gate was the match that everyone was talking coming out 2006 we have this new hot promotion we're going to be in Phoenix as well. And that became a huge thing. And arguably, probably the reason why WrestleMania weekend ancillary events became such a big thing was Gabe showed like, okay, it just wasn't because how Ring of Honor still was. Ring of Honor was still the obvious number three, but showing that what would arguably be the number four, number five promotion in 2010 was able to run these shows and not completely take a bath pretty much meant like, okay, this is going to be a continual thing to current day. So like 10 years ago, like this was like, a big crowning moment, I feel like, on the United States Indies, the fact that this weekend even happened. I think my last note on the Davy situation is uh, in his 2012 High Spot Shoot interview, which is called Davy Richards, the Man Behind the Hunt, in which Davy, I, I had not seen this shoot before, which I, I have seen most of the High Spot stuff from around this time because 
uh, you know, 2012, you're dealing with Steen and Ring of Honor. You're dealing with the fallout with Jim Cornette. But guys are talking like Ronnie has a shoot interview. There's a, a Steve Carino, Jimmy Jacobs shoot. Kevin Steen has his own shoot interview, which spawns the Kevin Steen show. Like there's a lot of content from that time that's really enjoyable. I had never seen the Davies shoot interview, the man behind the hunt, in which he sits in the high spots warehouse in the high spots ring in a hoodie like kind of like sitting in the corner like Ravenwood, but it's it's Davy and he's like in an affliction shirt for part of the time and he's in a hoodie the other part of the time and it's it's so uncomfortable the way it's set up like it's so Davy, which has been one of the most fun things about this project is just reliving just Davy Richards in the flesh. It's been just a wonderful experience. But Davy says what convinced him to stay with Ring of Honor was Carrie Silken saying uh, to go ahead and work both shows, that Davy could work Ring of Honor in Phoenix, while Davy was saying that Gabe said Drangate USA was created to put Ring of Honor out of business. According to Davy, Ring of Honor allowed him to work both shows that the idea would ha- that Ring of Honor would have for first priority, and then the issue came when Gabe told Davy that he must only work during at USA and evolve Gabe would indirectly dispute those claims in his March, 2015 shoot interview that he conducted with high spots. Uh, it was Matt Stryker as the moderator for whatever reason. And then it was Gabe Sapolsky and Adam Pierce kind of shooting back and forth. Gabe says he made the most money he's ever has in the wrestling industry in 1998, selling ECW programs when WWE WCW and ECW were all doing well. So he understands that, you know, for wrestling to do well, promotions, multiple promotions have to exist and have to be healthy. But the reason I bring this up is, and I kind of said this a minute ago, but the tension between the WWN family and Ring of Honor, first of all, still exists to this day. I mean, guys do not work both promotions, but in the in the Drangit USA sense, and we'll talk about it, you know, 20 or so episodes from now, but in 2012, Ring of Honor tried to get Gabe to come back and accept a plaque for the 10-year anniversary show and all of this, and And the battle lines were still drawn, and it's something that now, because the two promotions are on such opposite ends of the spectrum, where Ring of Honor was in a rebuilding phase, but they're whatever they are. They're the number three American promotion behind AEW, I think, ahead of Impact, but they're in a weird spot, and then Evolve is... NXT for NXT, which, you know, their whole relationship is still very strange to me. PCAA. Exactly. NXTAA. There you go. Um, But guys still do not work for both promotions. And there's a point in time where a thing on the indies becomes if you can book Ring of Honor guys versus Dragon Gate USA guys, that becomes a drawing match. And there's nothing like that on the independent scene now. Just because, and it's probably, you know, it's probably for the best that there's not as much tension, but like, I remember PWG in 2013. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was a a huge factor to PWG's success was that they were able to get all of these guys in one place. In 2013, they booked Adam Cole versus Johnny Gargano, which was the Ring of Honor World Champion versus the Open the Freedom Gate Champion. And, And as a fan, I looked at that as a really big deal because you just don't see that crossover to this day. So this set the precedent for the next decade of independent wrestling. Yeah. And especially what you would see in, in especially like 2016 through 2018, when people would be unhappy if ring of honor would jump to evolve at that point, there was the chasm and this was the chasm. And it's something that's kind of forgotten that I feel like that was important for us to bring up, even in the auspices of this guy who actually really, enjoyed on these first four shows it, it's something that Davey before this point I always thought he was fine 
But like watching these shows and watching these matchups, then again, he was against some of my favorite people in Dragon System history, so that helps. But it's that this is like the end of like the true first chapter of the promotion and losing Davy. I think in a lot of eyes, and I think as we're going to look at how this promotion is covered as well, things change a little bit with that, with the exception of WrestleMania weekend. And here's one more thing that I have from the same observer that was talking about the pay-per-view situation, March 15th, where where they're talking about how the business is, is that the Phoenix shows should do well, especially the March 27th show is Phoenix is doing very well. Great, Dave. English right there, but Gabe Sapolsky readily admits that Phoenix numbers aren't indicative of anything. Even if they do 1,000 in both nights, and they may hit that the second night with a good walk-up in the local community the Lucha Libre market means something, it, that is not a sign that things are turning upward. The key going forward is, is that they'll be mostly doing double-shot weekends. The big expense is bringing the Dragon Gate wrestlers in Japan, and prorating it over the two shows means they're, they can do okay with 350 a night. So, we're less than a we're less than a year in the promotion. We've gone from they have to sell 500 tickets to now they're selling 350 across a week, and so 700 total. So this was like a big thing that like when things went down, like this was the same time as the pay-per-view situation went down. This is the same thing as they were Ring of Honor and Dragon Gate USA were c- competing for people because they were running at the same time this weekend. And there's other talent that kind of got pulled as well. So I know that you kind of have collected a little bit more about this. So the Young Bucks and their final weekend in this stint of Dragon Gate USA. Yeah, Gabe was not out of the woods, uh, no pun intended, with just the Davy situation, because Davy Richards is a wolf, wolf lives in the woods, so I hope you follow those dots, but the Young Bucks were also uh, a focal point of this weekend in terms of who they would work for, because the Bucks at this point are featured Ring of Honor talent. They are on the HDNet tapings, they defeated Kevin Steen and El Generico at Final Battle 2009, They are the focal point of the Ring of Honor Westward expansion, the Los Angeles show at the end of January that year. But they recently signed TNA contracts. So initially, TNA had pulled the Young Bucks off of the Dragon Gate USA shows. Now, that was never made public. There's no news update saying that the Young Bucks are off the shows. This was done in private. Gabe, with his world falling apart, and you know, rightfully so, made a frantic call to Terry Taylor. Uh, They got into a big argument over the phone, and Terry Taylor eventually said, well, let's not get lawyers involved. The Young Bucks can work the Dragon Gate USA shows, whatever. But the Young Bucks were caught up in all of this. I mean, this very easily could be the David Richards and Young Bucks journey that we talk about. But the Young Bucks had an escape hatch with TNA, and they sort of fell by the wayside and said, well, we'll work for Gabe, no issue. But we have TNA after this, and TNA is going to be our focus. And to circle back to the loyalty argument, the Young Bucks have talked about this. Uh, pretty extensively whenever the topic has come up that you know they were really close with the Dragon Gate guys. They had done two tours there uh, in Japan. They were on the Dragon Gate USA shows. They had done the European Dragon Gate tour and had become really good friends with all the guys there. They mainly mentioned Naruki Doi and Masato Yoshino as their really close friends in the promotion. And they've talked about it ever since of, you know, even when they came back to Dragon Gate USA, you know, they were friendly with the guys, but they always felt a little ostracized because they had left and they left in a time where the promotion needed them and they went to TNA and it's just another one of those loyalty things. That's why Shuji Kondo coming back and Ultima coming back were such big deals. It's why when hell freezes over and Shima comes back, uh, I will, I will melt. I won't, I won't be able to write an article. I won't know what to do with my life because we're talking about the young bucks leaving the American offshoot of the promotion and they've never felt 
entirely respected by the Dragon Gate guys ever since. I mean, that's probably a reason why they're working with Shima, you know? I mean, the, 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 there's a lot to be said there about those kind of relationships. And also, like, when we talk about Gabriel booking this weekend, clearly, as we've talked about in the first few shows, one of the big matches probably for this night would have been because of the three, the six-man match that was undoubtedly going to happen on, on uh, Mercury Rising, Speed Muscle versus Young Bucks was heavily pointed towards, and by this point, by Chicago, so by Fearless, they already knew that they were on the way out. They had them drop the first fall in that three-way tag match, and there's no more Speed Muscle versus Young Bucks match happening on the show, on a show that really desperately could have used it. Yeah, I firmly believe until I hear from a primary source that the plan for this Open the Ultimate Gate show was Davey versus Hulk and Young Bucks versus Speed Muscle. Those were going to be the two main events because the Young Bucks end up teaming with Jack Evans in the main event, but Evans is announced as, you know, on January 27th as the first guy really announced for these shows other than Davey Richards and BB Hulk and uh, is. I don't want to say lost in the shuffle, but it doesn't feel like Jack was meant to main event this show with the Young Bucks. It seemed like that came together just by happenstance because Gabe uh, had had pivoted ideas for whatever reason. You know, the Young Bucks, okay, well, let's get a six-man out of them and let's do this, and maybe they can't take the fall because of the TNA thing, whatever it was. I firmly believe until I hear otherwise that Speed Muscle versus the Bucks was the plan for this show. So I think at this point we're ready to kind of go into the general timeline unless you have anything more for the Bucks and Davey Richards. No, no, I, th- I think that that's a pretty honest way of looking at things. Uh, I would love to know what the primary plans were for that card because I think you're dead on about this. I could have seen like Jack Evans maybe doing something with Shima because that was a pretty big moment at least for Dragon Gate watchers. The fact that Jack Evans, who was the first big gaijin for Dragon Gate, was back on these shows. Like I remember thinking of that and... And in one like the few instances that I felt like Gabe was doing booking for the uh, Western Dragon Gate fans, I thought Gain Jack was a big deal. But it was not; he was not going to be the primary or even secondary or probably even tertiary focus of the show. He might have more figured into to the, the total madness that happened with the tag match with the former WWE guys and John Moxley and Jimmy Jacobs. So let's get into the timeline of things. Other news and notes that happened in this time period. Uh, that I mentioned this a little bit earlier. They announced a Lucha, a Lucha Libre match on the show. This was not in the pay-per-view. It was on the extra bonus disc on the uh, DVD set. And I was kind of, it kind of piqued my interest just because of who it was. And remembering at the time, people who went to the show saying like, oh, this match was terrible, completely killed the crowd. And it's pretty noticeable there, but they booked El Hio Del Rey Mysterio and LA Park defeated uh, Derek and Nay Kirk and GQ Gallo and it seemed like at this time that this was Gabe trying to reach out to the Latinx population and trying to get more of a walk-up audience here but it just was one of those things that was announced on the show and was used there but there is one person that we really have to talk about because he weirdly f- kind of featured his way into the show case and you know who that is who's that that is Bob Saget 
Yes. Let's uh, let me run through a few things real quick and yeah. then we will get to Bob Saget because uh, he's coming up. Uh, I, I want to do a sports radio. You know, don't miss. You'll never believe who is on these Dragon Gate USA, USA shows that's coming up next. But first, uh, February 4th, 411 Mania reports that there was some heat with the main Dragon Gate office in Japan over how the Davy Richards situation was handled. And that, quote, the feeling is that the company will mainly focus on the Japanese talents now since they can be trusted to be completely on board end quote uh mike and i will debunk that theory in just a few episodes <laughs> on february 3rd it is noted that the freedom fight pay-per-view received a hundred percent thumbs up in the wrestling observer newsletter i think i already said that february 9th gabe has a long newsletter about how from 2006 to 2008 the highlight for many fans during wrestlemania weekend he calls it the weekend of mania actually was the Gate six-man tag match and he announces the mercury rising main event the six-man tradition returns Shima, Gamma, Dragon Kid versus Naruki Doi, Masada Yoshino, and BB Hulk. That is not all for Shima. On February 12th, my birthday, Shima posts a MySpace message challenging the Young Bucks. He says he's still angry that he lost to the Young Bucks on the first pay-per-view and that he knows uh, that he wants them in a six-man tag match. Shima's bringing over his best partner in Gamma as well as Dragon Kid, and the Young Bucks can pick whoever they want as their partner. February 15th, the Young Bucks accept the challenge, and they choose Jack Evans. March 1st, it is announced that a title versus title match will happen on the Open the Ultimate Gate show between Open the Freedom Gate champion BB Hulk and Open the Dream Gate champion Naruki Doi. This is the top belt in USA versus the top belt in Dragon Gate proper. And then we have the March 16th DGUSA Newswire, which I will read verbatim because Mike, you know, brought it up just a second ago. But I want to read Gabe's writing in particular. He says the March 26th event in Phoenix just got much more interesting. We will be kicking things off with a bang. The first match will feature a top Dragon Gate star wrestling in a segment that will be taped for a new A&E series. This will put Dragon Gate USA on national TV. What will really make this unique is a celebrity star that will be a part of the segment. Now, we can't mention the star by name, but we promise you that you will see a combination of people in the ring that you will never have dreamed possible. Wait till you see how Drangate Mania starts on in Phoenix on March 26th. You've never seen anything like this before, and it'll never happen again. Anything is possible when the national TV cameras of A&E start rolling. We hope to have more information soon. And is this where I should cut in with what Dave oh, said right Mike, afterwards? Oh, Mike, please, please cut in, Mike. All right, so this is from uh, the um, March 29th, I believe it was March 29th Observer. Yes, it is. Okay. So we have two things here from the Observer. The Dragon Gate USA and the ROH rivalry has heated up as Dragon Gate has made an offer for March 26th in Phoenix when both groups are going head-to-head offering $20 off tickets to anyone who purchased a Ring of Honor ticket and brings their ticket sub to the gate. They're also doing a late sale for tickets. Looks like they're a little worried filling the building with A&E filming Bob Saget's show at the venue. They are doing a reality show with eight wrestlers, which started filming on 320 at SoCal Pro Wrestling Show in Oceanside, California. They're also filming on 326. The wrestling are competed for something related to working with this promotion. The idea is that there are some unknown newcomers and some former names who have experience but fell off the wayside and are looking for the way back in. The names are Johnny Yuma, Jason Watts, Jason Rotundo, David Flex, Luke Hawks, who used to be in XPW, Brad Bad, uh, Christina Von Eri, who is a name we'll be talking about a lot throughout this history shows, who is in AAA already, and Extreme Loco. So Bob Saget was here and... 
he was there on the 26th show. And there was another little tidbit of, about someone who's going to show up on the show. Should I read this tidbit or should we leave this to be a surprise when we do the re- review of the show? I don't know who the tidbit is, so go for it. Teddy Hart is likely to appear ah, on the March yes. 26th show. He will not be advertised ahead of time. Gabe Sapolsky, years ago, vowed never to use Hart again since Hart never listens to what he's told and likes to go out there and show off to a moves whether or not that makes sense in the context of the match, the roles of it, the match, the storyline, or not. So, he's saying this the week before, Davis publishing this the week before Ultimate Gate. And, wow, that is a lot of stuff to be throwing on. And I have to say... They probably made some money on that A&E thing, like giving up things like this, unless they did this for pure exposure, which I could see them saying, like, let's do it for exposure. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. yeah. Oh, Gabe Sapolsky seems like a big exposure guy. I mean, that is how <laughs> he's been doing business for a long time. Uh, did you ever see, I don't know what this A&E show is. Did you ever see this? Did this ever surface anywhere? But uh, I d- I remember this was like a time period where Bob Saget was kind of coming back on the take because he was known for being such a dirty mouth comedian, you know, like he definitely <laughs> was something here. Let me see. Uh, does not even have a Wikipedia page for strange days with all Bob Saget's existed for six episodes on a and I don't think it's streaming anywhere. Wow. So 2010, everybody like this was, well, this has been around when the, uh, so this is five years after the aristocrats came out. And that's like one of the big things about when Bob Saget, everyone's like, Oh yeah, no Bob Saget actually works really, really blue. And that was a big surprise, but you could watch this episode of strange days with Bob Saget. It is episode four for $3 on Amazon prime. Ooh, I might have to check that out. Yeah, we might, that might be something we add in for the next show as we both watch this and at least watch the wrestling thing for that. So just kind of a wild thing that was happening here. Here's the caption. Bob goes to the backyards, to the barrio, to the big time as he explores the world of wrestling. Bob will ride along with two Lucha Libre brothers who wrestle in a church in East Los Angeles using their secret identities. He'll go to a backyard wrestling match where want to be tough guys jump through tables and put on a show for the friends and neighbors. I'm going to see if I can find out more about this, Matt, the show itself, but that's the caption we have on Amazon. Mike, I hate to do your business for you, but this sounds like an Everything Elite Patreon episode. <laughs> I mean, I know, how right? we're not putting that behind the paywall, I do not know, because I'll take a cut, certainly. I would <laughs> love to be behind the paywall again. I get a nice a nice little deposit from Aaron Bentley every time I do it. But my God, I mean, if we're not reviewing Bob Saget behind the paywall, what are you guys doing over there? I don't understand it. I mean, we have to reassess our whole business practices now because this is this should be exclusive content. Like this so, is, yeah, <laughs> it's, you're you're right. So we've talked almost an hour without breaking down the matches, but we're not done just yet because before we get into the Dragon Gate USA show, uh, Mike noted that Dragon Gate USA was offering people uh, if they had their Ring of Honor ticket to exchange it for a Dragon Gate USA ticket. So let's break down real quick just an overview of the Ring of Honor card from March 26, 2010. This was the from the Ashes show which featured a opening six-man mayhem match with Colt Cabana, Human Tornado, Joey Ryan, Johnny Goodtime, Rache Brown, and Sean Devari, a Kings of Wrestling versus Scorpio Sky and Scott, Scott Lost match, Alex Kozlov versus Rocky Romero, Necro Butcher versus Bison Smith, Kevin Steen versus Kenny Omega, Steve Carino versus El Generico, a Tyler Black gauntlet match in which he wrestled both Austin Aries and Roderick Strong, a no-DQ match between Jerry Lynn and Kenny King, and the main event, 
the Ring of Honor Tag Team Championship match between the Briscoe Brothers and the American Wolves. That's a that's definitely a 2009 Ring of Honor show. Doesn't it just reek of Adam Pierce? And I like a lot of Pierce's time there, but that's like, mm, yeah, Rashi Brown in the six man match. Uh, Bison Smith, who I was a fan of, but Bison Smith is there. Uh, and it's a Briscoe's American Wolves main event, which means it's definitely Adam Pierce era. Yeah. And then Kenny Omega during like his one of his three like random like US stints, but I think this was like right before he went over to DDT full time. So yeah, that's a, that's a really good match with him and Kevin Steen. But as a whole, just trying to, you know, I, I don't know if, <laughs> if, if, well, I guess you, you were watching at the time. Um, I'll say this. To me, the Dragon at USA show on paper blows this Ring of Honor show away. I'm not a huge fan of Pierce era Ring of Honor. Like, it just, as much as I, I liked American Wolves and I really liked El Generico and Steam, just not really a big fan. I feel like that, sadly, I know it's not a very popular thing. I think when Cornette came in and then kind of moved away for Delirious, like that 2010 to 2012 era was a little better. But 2009 was not my thing. So the the Ultimate Gate show, which I think this is the first show that I have absolutely no memory of the first time when I watched this. I came away with the show like, okay, so yeah, I absolutely would take this this open the uh, Ultimate Gate show over the uh, Ring of Honor from the ashes. That's kind of a little bit too on the nose there, Adam. Yeah, I can picture the DVD cover of From the Ashes for whatever reason. as Tyler Black just there with it's whatever. It's a Ring of Honor DVD cover. They've all been bad. Uh, but let's get into this Dragon Gate USA show. That is what we're here to talk about. Uh, Open the Ultimate Gate, like Mike said, he had no memories of, of this show. I know I had watched at least the first two matches because I remember watching Yamato versus TJP at one point, which would have been during the Flow Slam era. Right. But most of this show I had not seen before. Okay, so attendance for this turned out to be about 450. So all the walk-up appealing to the Latinx community ended up doing about 450. This was a venue that sat 2,500, and you could tell it sat 2,500 because it— I feel like that's something that we should like talk about before we get into this. Very weird venue. They had the ring on the round. I remember at the time, Gabe said that this would be the best way to ever watch pro wrestling because everyone in this, you wouldn't have anyone blocking it because it's a theater that has a circle area that they put the ring there. And it, good idea in theory. Not necessarily the great, the great thing in application. The closest thing I'd compare it to is Center Stage in Atlanta. I don't know how many shows you've seen from Center Stage case, but... Very, yeah, no, that's it's very similar. Very similar. Uh, let's go through the matches that were not on the show first. We had a eight-way fray match with a whole lot of names actually that are that 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 matter somewhat in 2020. One of them that doesn't sadly is Brad Allen, who defeated Brandon Cutler, Chimera, aka Ricardo Rodriguez, Dave Christ, Dustin Cutler, Jake Christ, Malachi Jackson. Yes, the Jackson's brother and the guy who I think was their. Uh, the referee for their match ahead on BTE this week, and the Prophet, 15 minutes and 21 seconds. Yamato defeated Luke Hawks in the match that was taped for A&E. And then the match we mentioned earlier, the the uh, Lucha Tag Team match, which was El Hio Del Rey Mysterio and LA Park defeating Derek Nierkirk and GQ Gallo by DQ, 22 minutes and 50 seconds. And the results live were not very complimentary about that Lucha match. No, you know why Lucha sucks? Because they went 22 minutes and ended with a DQ. It's awful. Like just it, I just hate that. I love LA Park. Like, I like those brawls. But, like, 
2010 LA Park in like this kind of setting, I could see why everyone completely just shat on it. And 22 minutes and 50 seconds, it is the longest match on the show by almost a full five minutes. Yeah, no, it's it's completely insane. And then from there, we go to the DVD portion of the show, which begins with Jimmy Jacobs cutting a promo where he says what Brian Kendrick did to him in Chicago was inhumane. He brought Lacey back and disregarded her once he was done with her. Jacob says he's bringing someone from Brian Kendrick's past, someone who we actually cares about, and that man is Paul London. Paul London says he's eager to wrestle Brian Kendrick. London says Kendrick can push him to be the competitor that he wants to be. I... <laughs> have a lot of feelings about this. First of all, you know, we talked about how Gabe was fearful of using ring of honor talent because he knew it would eventually blow up and all this. I don't love the fact that he's beginning Dragon Gate USA shows with backstage Jimmy Jacobs promos. And I like Jimmy Jacobs a lot, but this to me is like the last thing you would want to do in my opinion, because this is no different than 2008 ring of honor. Like this is the same exact thing that they were doing for that entire calendar year, you know, let alone, you know, the Jimmy loves Lacey stuff. I mean, Jimmy Jacobs had been in the promotion in ring of honor since 2003, 2004. So why you would be doing the same production with the same guy, I have no idea. And I, and I get that Gabe is technologically challenged and doesn't really understand production to that degree and has never really been an innovator in that field. But I, was so annoyed by seeing Jimmy Jacobs on the screen. And I like Jimmy Jacobs, especially as a promo. And then Paul London comes in and I've got a lot of thoughts on Paul London that we'll get into when we talk about the match, but his odd couple promo here with Jimmy Jacobs did nothing for me. Paul London was, I'm a huge Paul London guy. I think I've said that on many different podcasts. He was the person that when I used to get the shitty indie on U on UPN, he was like the big featured guy. And I was big fan of him. Watch. He was, a, he was the reason I got into ring of honor. And I was so stoked about him in WWE. Of course, this was young Mike Spears, not grizzled old uh, tracksuit wearing Mike Spears. So you could you, you could put my blames to innocence there. This was the time that Paul Lennon's gimmick were kind of, on the Indies was he was just blazed out of his mind the entire time. And I actually wrote down one of his lines. Blood could be good for you if you're a vampire, but bad if you're a Ugh. human. So, so annoying. I hate that shit. I, I, I thought it was... I laughed, but I didn't laugh because I thought it was funny. I laughed because it was terrible. That is the kind of stuff. I mean, Paul London, in a weird way, was doing, you know, comedy on the indies before comedy on the indies took over. I mean, there's just, it just, I, we'll, we'll talk about it when we get to the match. There's so much potential that Paul London had post WWE. Oh, absolutely. And with the exception of a few matches, he never, ever hit it. Yeah, no, it was like one of like my loss of wrestling innocence, realizing that Paul London's best work was with was with Kendrick and WWE and then like five matches in Ring of Honor. But Eminem, Eminem 2006 SmackDown. Those were good matches, let me tell you. Oh, absolutely. But that gets into the first match of the pay-per-view portion. We have Chikara Sekigun of Jigsaw and Mike Quackenbush going against the Warriors team of Susumi Yokosuka and Kiki Horiguchi. Uh, Yokosuka got the win as he would be having the uh, Dreamgate match the next night uh, with the Mugen and 13 minutes and 36 seconds on Mike Quackenbush and the first thing that struck me, Case, and this is also watching things now and watching things from back then, when Genki went from uh, Real Hazard into Warriors, his look was wild. Like, he had he didn't have the extensions in yet, so he just had, like, that random patch of hair that he would tie in the extensions. His gear was, ugh, Genki finally has good gear now. So, like, I, I'm happy for him now, but this was, like, really, like, kind of shitty gear. And this was when it really hit me how bad the ring setup was, this match. Um, I don't know 
I, I don't know. I, I don't have an issue with the round. I thought the arena looked bad. Um, just it was there was like a weird like bluish purple light that I just thought was way too strong in the overall production of the thing. I think Drang at USA. I mean, you know, to an extent, they're always going to be balling on a budget. And I, I don't think Gabe does well in that sense. I mean, it looked like a minor league company trying to be major mm-hmm. league with everything that was said. And I don't think that I, I, you know, I've got thoughts on the round that, you know, tie into Paul London to an extent. Yeah, we'll, so get, we'll get, get to that. that. Yeah. Um, but this was like the first match where it struck me, I feel like. Yeah, it it's very disorienting from going from the arena, which is very recognizable, even the Congress Theater, which, you know, might not have been the nicest building inside, but especially the first show they ran there on camera had a certain appeal to it that at least looked respectable. And I think it was like Gabe was either trying to do too much with the limited resources he had, or he wasn't, he didn't have the resources to do what he wanted. And they ended up in this weird middle ground with a strong blue light that was kind of annoying me the entire show. As for the match, it's weird to think that Jigsaw, who's been on every show up to this point, this was his first match where he really got to work against Drangate guys. Now he worked the Chikara showcase on the first show. The second show, he was in a tag match with Granakuma and Yamato. And then also had, uh, on the last Chicago show, the tag match was Shima and super crazy, but the way he was used in those matches, he was relegated to getting beat, beat down. Um, he wasn't really getting extended sequences with, uh, both Yamato and Shima. And so now he's in this shot where he's got Genki Horiguchi and Susumu. When I I vastly prefer babyface Genki Horiguchi. That is just the role for him. Like Masato yeah. Yoshino has been a face for a decade now. And if he wasn't retiring, I would be begging for a Masato Yoshino heel turn. Horiguchi can stay face for the rest of his career. It's how I like to consume his matches. Jigsaw, I thought, really held up his end of the bargain with both with both Horiguchi and Susumu, and to an extent. This match felt like the Americanized version of Dragon Gate wrestling realized. Like, if if Dragon Gate USA was in some strange, far-off universe, if they had gotten a weekly TV show, this feels like the the proper version of what their house style would have become. And it's because Jigsaw worked his ass off in this match. Yeah, and it's something where... You're with someone like Sumi Koska, who we've sung his praises countless times. And Ginky Horiguchi is someone that it's interesting because he was a part of the 2006 match. So he's, at least for like the certain fans, like they knew the HAG chant. And he has such a crowd connection. This absolutely, like, there were versions of Dragon Gate USA that they chopped up the shows and put on TV. I think Fight Network had it. And I think France had a version of the show as well. But this definitely kind of felt like this. I think it's probably something that for Quackenbush's sake, he's probably better that he's in the ring now with someone who, with wrestlers who just don't want to eat his lunch. And <laughs> someone like Susumu was great for this match. Cause I mean, Susumu Yokosuka is someone that if you're not familiar with Dragon Gate, you get Susumu Yokosuka's style pretty immediately. He is just a power junior who loves to do his lariats. And then he goes for his big throws and his big underhook moves. So this all meshed in well, especially for like an audience that primarily it seems like was there other than like the half of them that were there for like WrestleMania week and Dragon Gate stuff and the half that were there for the Lucha match. This was an easy match for them all to get invested into. And I thought that in the way that it worked, I, I liked how Jigsaw was more incorporated in this match. And th- this really kind of like developed the storyline about Dragon Gate versus Chikara that kind of played out here because it was the first time that you had Dragon Gate and Chikara without Shima involved. And I feel like that 
kind of is the big turning point in this overall feud they had. Yeah, without Shima involved and involved and also without what would become Kamikaze USA. So it is the truest Dragon Gate versus Chikara match we've had up to this point. I gave it three and a half stars. I thought it was an excellent opener. I was three. I was three. I mean, I, w- I thought Jigsaw, it was good to see him here. I think he might have been a little bit, I don't want to say like, uh, he was a little bit like over his head there, but he had a couple, it was a little rough going before things really started to gel. Like this was a match that the, uh, the final stretch was great, but like the first like few minutes wasn't doing a whole lot for me. So I went gentleman's three on that, but I thought that this is like an interesting point. Cause this was like one of the simmering storylines that the big thing after the match was that, uh, Susumu and Ginky shook, shook their hands. They, they were the ones that went forward and tried to shake their hands. So now we're starting to see like, at least it might be Shima does not accept, uh, the uh, Chikara guys and Kamikaze does not accept the Chikara guys, but it does seem like other people on the roster are. And I think that was something that Gabe was trying to get across with that post-match thing. For sure. And then from there you move into Yamato versus TJP. Mike, what are your thoughts here? Well, you forgot about one thing between this. We had a short segment backstage. Oh, I was going to mention this. Yeah. I was going to mention the next one. No, go ahead. Yeah. Say your piece here. Cause I'll add on to it. Intensive music with speed muscle backstage. Uh, it looked like that Doi was kind of warming up and, and Yoshino was sitting in the chair looking, thinking about wanting to be anywhere else but Phoenix. Didn't it remind you? So they did this after the opening match and then after the second match where they right. just had Drangate guys standing in a room with like ambient music playing in the background. Didn't it remind you of like a video game loading screen? <laughs> it did like I very much so. I couldn't figure out what they were. Oh, I couldn't figure out what the purpose of that was. If you sat down and asked Gabe and Sal... <laughs> and from a very, you know, a production background, you know, what are you trying to accomplish with this shot? Mm-hmm. I would love to hear their answer. I mean, I know that, that like Gabe was able to get some sort of like a music thing going, like where like he had like artists that were able to like have the music there. And that was most of the uh, theme music for people who weren't Dragon Gate people, but just was so just what was going on here. But yeah, TJP versus Yamato. Yamato won with the Dojima Sleeper. It was a... 11 minutes and 22 seconds and i love this match i give it i went three and a half stars on it because of like it was a match that obviously with yamato where he was it was going to be yamato controlling this match but i really enjoyed this uh, match what was your thoughts about it man i i wanted to like this match because i really like this era of yamato and i you know really like tjp i think first of all this should have been done in Evolve. And the fact that Yamato never worked in Evolve date is wild to me because he is mm-hmm. the one guy from this roster, maybe yeah. other than Mochizuki, that like could have killed it in Evolve. Um I don't know. It was a little it was a little awkward. It was slower than most of the TJP matches I like. I just kept on kind of waiting for that move, that strike, that kick, whatever it was, to draw me in a little bit. And it never happened. And I felt like the first time I watched this match, I liked it a lot. This time, I it just did nothing for me. Um, and then, on top of that, I thought the finish was a little awkward. Where the finish was know, awkward. Yeah. Yeah. TJP taps at just a weird point, and then you know TJP. I you know we'll talk about it in, in future episodes, but I think this was a major setback in terms of TJP's career. I think this this match said a lot about him the way the Dragon Gate roster perceived him, and the way that he and Gabe Sapolsky's relationship transpired from here on out. Yeah, no, this was a match where I think it's 
accurate to say that it was 75% Yamato, 25% TJP. Uh, I thought that this was a lot more healing from Yamato than you had on earlier shows. There was like this thing where TJP looked like he was going to do a dive, which, hey, that's ridiculous doing a dive here. And Yamato crawled underneath the ring to invade and was able to attack him from behind. There was this like one moment that really kind of solidified what kind of match this was where Yamato, when I said he went 75-25, was to a point that when TJP, TJP got the advantage, he did the uh, old heel gag of swigging the uh, babyface's foot into the referee's groin. So the referee is debilitated, then kicking TJP low, and then TJP picked Yamato low, and that kind of gave you a sense of what kind of match this was. Yeah, does not not my cup of tea, nor was the next match. Yep, but we had the other pensive thing. This time it was Yoshino and Hulk. Maybe Yoshino was just hanging out backstage, getting ready for his Shingo match. and <laughs> Wanting to not be in Phoenix. <laughs> not wanting to be in Phoenix, but knowing that two members of World 1 were going to face off, they didn't want to be in the locker room at the same time, so when they wanted to come in and talk to Yoshino, he was like, all right, you get five minutes, Doi. You get five minutes, Hulk. I guess the camera's on me. Like I'm just trying to get some in-character justification for this. But. More power to you, Mike. I did not think that hard about it. <laughs> oh, I, I only think about things that they're ridiculous and they amuse me, and I try to justify them in my mind. So that's why I did. But the next match, oh boy, John Moxley and Brian Kendrick versus Paul London and Jimmy Jacobs. Uh, Paul London was completely off his tits during his entrance, like just completely whacked out. And this is 2009, 2010 Paul London for you. This match sucked, though. Like, frankly, it just was bad a london london had like a nice moment early on in the match and then got winded and just turned into this this real big mess of a match and really the only people who came out of this match looking somewhat impressive were jacobs and moxley in my opinion uh kendrick got the win in 13 minutes 52 seconds with a small package on jimmy jacobs so i hated everything about this match terrible match. um it's weird you know they start off and it's you know jacobs kind of brawls with Paul or with Brian Kendrick, Paul London pulls him off. Jacobs and Mox get dumped and we end up with London, London and Kendrick squaring off. Uh, and it looks like, which I, I thought was odd because I thought they would build to that. And then sure enough, Brian Kendrick tags out, John Moxley comes in. So I at least like the setup to the match, but as things go along, the work is really sloppy. You can tell Paul London's not in shape. At some point he grabs a microphone, which doesn't turn on initially. Oh yeah. And then, he cuts a mid-match promo where, and part of it is just the way that the audio was mixed and it was so blown out that it was hard to understand anyways, but I really have no idea what he was trying to say with this promo. It goes back to the Brian Kendrick stuff from Philly where I guess supposedly he was shooting, but he was speaking in such abstract terms that I couldn't really pick up on it. Paul London was essentially doing the same thing in the middle of a match here, and then you know Jimmy Jacobs... Uh, gets caught up in a small package for the win. So that's the match. We'll talk about the post-match in a second. To me, this is the worst match in Dragon USA history up to this point, because whereas Two Cold Scorpio versus Ken Dunn was bad, it was bad in a vacuum. This was offensively bad. This dragged down the show. It was long. It made no sense. It was guys with potential, guys that were very good, or at least could be very good, that were being actively bad. Yeah, uh... I, I try to write down what was happening and like when London did the promo. Basically, there was a face-off that was supposed to happen between London and Kendrick. Kendrick wanted no part. He stayed on the outside. Then London started wrestling an invisible man for like two minutes. Like it, and, then that, and then he grabbed the microphone. And the only line I can make out, which 
this might just be my hearing. He made some comment about pedophiles. Was I the did yeah. you okay? He's so talking about how me. they've both lost to pedophiles, and I couldn't tell if that was in reference to Vince McMahon or what. I, yeah, I, I just I I hate all of this. I hate this... like I don't mind you know work shoot stuff. If it's like done like Brian Danielson versus Roderick Strong, which I don't even think is work shoot. I think that is a, a, a gross take from their This Means War match where, you know, I think Danielson in the context of the match just gets pissed and decides he's had enough and is strong enough to submit Roderick Strong. But any, I mean, and, and it plagued Paul London and Brian Kendrick their entire independent career where it's just, it's just bullshit after bullshit. Right. I was looking at their cage match and I thought they had done a bunch of these matches where they had squared off against one another, but instead it's really only this, this match. And then they have a match at PWG in June of 2010, where it's generico and Paul London versus Brian Kendrick and Kevin Steen, which is a match that I, I wish greatly there was an oral history of because supposedly you have Paul London, who's Paul London. You have Brian Kendrick, who's Brian Kendrick. And then you have Kevin Steen and El Generico who are, mad at each other for real trying to put together this match and it it is a super disappointing match on a super disappointing pwg show but right. you know just paul london's entire time on the independence it just never really worked out the way it should have because there was this expectation of him um and i saw it in person 2013 my first ring of honor show roderick strong wrestles paul london it's one of the best ring of honor matches of the sinclair era it is an outstanding match and then they try to follow up they wanted to do january 2014 ring of honor booked a two out of three falls match between the two paul london no shows never gets on the flight that's the end of him and ring of honor you know I certainly wasn't watching lucha underground by the time london showed up i don't know what his work was like there but Not outside great. of the Outside of the Roddy match, there's the Davey Richards Ring of Honor match where Davey jumps on his face, which I completely forgot about until just now. Um, <laughs> the the shoot double stomp to the face. Yeah. God, that was awesome. I was watching that live. I'm going to go back and watch that match. Um, this is turned to a Davey Richards podcast, <laughs> hasn't it? <laughs> oh, man, that match ruled. Um, but, you know, he's got the, the Ring of Honor matches and then there's the Generico stuff in PWG, which there's parts of it that are really excellent. But as a whole, it was just a disappointing mess this is one of those matches where there's a lot of creative minds at play here i mean it's you know it's jimmy jacobs john moxley paul london brian kendrick with gabe sapolsky overseeing the entire production there's too many ideas going on and it just it just creates a giant mess i hated this so much it's a dud worthy match and one note that i have that you've kind of convinced me out of this i thought this was the first ever wrestlecon super show match whoa what what hold on say that again i think this is the first ever wrestlecon super show match because it's just a match of people oh, that I, should yes, be i see what you're saying now much yes. better and it just turns into a complete farce and you get people talking about pedophiles and it's just disappointing and it had like the thing that was really disappointing was like london like had like one stretch where he did like the drop salt and i was like oh yeah this is what london was like and then immediately gassed and it's just like oh and then it just was meandering and it gets even more meandering. Should we get into the post-match stuff? Because, who boy, we have a lot to talk about here. Break it down for me, Mike. All right, so after the match, London and Jacobs try to position Mox to go through a table. I guess they thought that London was going to like do a move off the, the top through a table. And then Kendrick stops London, and then Teddy Hart comes to the ring. And John Moxley, I guess, disappears. We'll talk more about him later on. And 
he Teddy Hart grabs the mic. He does a top rope uh, aside moonsault later onto Jacobs and Mox. So he, that really kind of wipes those two out. Gets gets talked into doing another one, and then gets beat down. He Teddy Hart gets the microphone, and talks about the fans, and talks about defending the fans. It's whatever you hear about Teddy Hart's Teddy Hart promo. But when he was about to do his second moonsault just into the ring, uh, the best thing that Paul London does is he kicks him right in the face in the middle of the moonsault. And then they started a brawl again, and then Teddy jumps from the turnbuckle into the pit, and this was just dumb. And this was, you know, three matches in, and this was about a half hour that I wish I had back. So Teddy Hart shows up, like Mike said. Um, and this is after, so London's on the top rope, just to add a little more detail to what Mike said, London's on the top rope and Brian Kendrick convinces him not to jump and put John Moxley through a table because Kendrick says the fans aren't worth it. All they do is type stuff online and then yell in the dark, which is more just obnoxious verbiage from Brian Kendrick. Then Teddy Hart shows up. He says he gladly risked his life for these people and then does just like almost mid stride, almost just like it was just next on his to-do list. <laughs> yeah. The top rope Asai moonsault to the floor, off the platform, onto Jacobs and Mox, which had the segment ended there, I weirdly would have been okay with. Because here's my thing with Teddy Hart, and Teddy Hart is an awful person. There's just no I, there's no other way to describe it. Um, I He has numerous allegations from numerous points in his life that, for, you know, he's— He's like James Franco. He's uncancelable. You know, no matter how many times his name comes up in the media in a bad light, Teddy Hart seems to escape it. And it blows my mind. And it's probably better for wrestling if he's not booked anymore. But when Teddy Hart is on shows and when I watch him in moments like this and when he worked AAW for, you know, about a year, there's a part of me that's like, yeah. Teddy Hart belongs in professional wrestling. And, and again, I am completely removing the person he is from the wrestler he is. But like Teddy showing up saying, you know what? I love these people. That's why I risk my body. And then just doing a moonsault, which a moonsault to the floor is crazy enough. But that platform is a ginormous drop to the floor. I mean, it is a huge moonsault that Gabe would end up using later on in DGUSA video packages because it looked so good. If the segment had ended there, I would have been on board with it just because I have a perverse entertainment for what Teddy Hart brings to the table. It's not always good. He probably shouldn't be in locker rooms. But when he's there, there is a part about Teddy Hart I cannot take my eyes off of him. I am wildly entertained by what he does more often than not. That being said, it keeps going. And it keeps going and it keeps going. And then he brawls with London and Kendrick and then he does another dive, which is not as cool as the first one. And it keeps going. And it's just too long and it's too much Teddy. Teddy Hart needs to be like an ECW TV show. His segments need to be three minutes long and then there needs to be a hard cut to something else. Once Teddy hits seven minutes, it's too much Teddy. It's just insane. And then so... This does seem like something that we'll get into later where they were building up to something where Teddy Hart being Teddy Hart apparently got hurt or probably didn't because it's Teddy Hart and he didn't want to like job or anything. But like he did that second dive he did, he apparently landed really wrong and they said he broke his clavicle, which I've seen people right after they've broken their clavicle. That's usually not the case. I saw UT last year break his clavicle. It was not, you could tell immediately that something was wrong. He was just acting like Teddy Hart. 
man, Teddy Hart rules. Like, there's a part of him I am just so entertained by. Again, he is an awful person, but there is something about him that is professional wrestling in its truest form. And I am just, I don't know. I, he, again, he shouldn't be booked in 2020. He should not, he should be in prison, quite honestly. Well, but he if I'm going right to watch it. Yes, you're right. Yes, exactly. 10 years? If I'm watching footage from 10 years ago, I am so perversely entertained by what Teddy Hart brings to the table in just his entire deal. Well, Case, he'll be one of the people who's on the last ever DGUSA show. Oh, so I know. It's not our last Teddy Hart conversation. This isn't our last Teddy Hart conversation. So after that, we started getting, well, we had our, our weird uh, WrestleCon sojourn during there, but let's get back to the actual show, which was a singles match with Masato Yoshino versus Shingo. Masato Yoshino, as Lenny Leonard said really smartly on the show, has been racking up falls since he got out of the whole Dragon Kid thing. He submitted Shingo Takagi with the Sol Naciente Kai in 16 minutes and 4 seconds. And, you know, this this was like... I know I said this earlier, I think on, on like the first show, about how the uh, first match between BB Hulk and Yamato felt like a King of Gate match. I take it back. This was a King of Gate match that they had right here. And I thought it was I thought it was a solid match. You know, I thought this was a good match, but I mean at the point at this point in the show, I thought it was the best match of the show. And it was a you know, that they played a part there, and I felt like that they definitely are doing something building up Masato Yoshino in this promotion, and that also crosses over to Masato Yoshino in Japan. I think I liked the opener more than this match. Really? Uh, there, okay. There's something about Shingo and Yoshino that I have never totally vibed with. Now, I'm you know looking at their cage match, they had wrestled a singles match in 2005 that didn't make tape, right. which means this would have been their first televised singles match, which I did not realize. And then they worked uh, Dangerous Gate 2015, which is a very good match, King of Gate 2018, and Corkin, which I think is probably my favorite match of theirs, and then Kobe World 2018, which was kind of disappointing. These are two guys that just for whatever reason I don't think work great together. Um, I, I'm at three and a half, but I gave the opener three and a half, and it's just one of those things. I was delightfully surprised by the opener, and I was mm. slightly let down by this match, so I think I, I lean towards the opener a little bit. I do like to finish the Sol Naciente Kai and the way Yoshino kind of locked that in with Shingo doing the thing where he's lifting Yoshino up while in the Sol Naciente and it looks like he's about to powerbomb out. And then Yoshino sweeps the leg, sends him to the ground and gets him to tap there. Really interesting finish. I really, and this and this will come up later in the show, I had no idea Shingo had lost so many of these early DGUSA matches. Like he's on a losing streak at this point. I don't know if he's won a match yet. Yeah. Which no. blows me away. No, absolutely. I mean, he was the person who uh, took the fall at uh, at Fearless. He was the person who uh, lost the fall against Dragon Kit in the Speed Muscle Doi, uh, Speed Muscle Doyoshi versus Takaki DK match, which is still my match of the promotion at this point. And then he took the fall against Davey. And what was the first show? I'm flipping through my notes. What was uh, Doi? It was, he lost to Doi who was Dreamgate champion. Yeah. So, so he is Ofer on the show. And that was something that only when Lane Leonard brought that up, that it kind of played to me. I thought like the finish was awesome. I thought that the final stretch was great, especially with there was the, he was go, uh, Yoshino was going for, for jungle for like a second time in the match. And the big thing about the match was, I don't know if this was something that happened at, at compilation gate, or it was just something that was, just built up for this match he came in with like a heavily taped up knee and he wasn't able to like get out of the first one but then he was able to finally 
power through, do a power bomb into getting him up on his shoulders and running to the turnbuckle doing the stage dream. That ruled. And then the idea of doing the Sol Naciente Kai when he's trying to power up again with the bum leg was, I thought, a really smart finish. But yeah, it, it's only with Shingo and Yoshino where I think my favorite match of theirs would have been the uh, Dangerous Gate 2015. Like, I feel like that was probably their best match that I think I've seen in my opinion. Like, it's wild that this is their first ever televised singles match, though. Yeah, it's either the Dangerous Gate match or the KM Gate match they had. And the Dangerous Gate match, I have a more vivid memory of just because that set off what was a golden era in Dragon Gate for, you know, another year. I mean, a really special time. Um, You mentioned Compilation Gate, which happened on March 22nd, 2010 from Sumo Hall. So let's talk about that real quick Mm -hmm. in between Shingo and Yoshino and then the next match, which is why we're bringing up the Young Bucks cut a promo. They say it's fitting they're at the Celebrity Theater because they're on the way to becoming celebrities. And then Jack Evans comes out and it's not much of a promo. But Compilation Gate 2010 is a really big show. It's the last time that Dragon Gate ran Sumo Hall. Um, and it's a strange card that features names like Makoto Hashi, uh, Minonora Sawa, Juventud Guerrera. <laughs> That's the wildest name. Like, let's not bury the lead there. Akibono, Abdullah the Butcher, and the main event match of Yamato defeating Naruki Doi for the Open the Dream Gate title, which means that the title versus title match that Gabe Sapolsky had announced ended up not becoming such. Do we think that Gabe was clued in on that that wasn't going to happen? I think so, because my understanding is for the first year, he was pretty clued in on Dragon Gate booking. Now, I could be wrong, but my impression of it was always it's not until uh, 2011 Junction 3 and Blood Warriors, which just, you know, even by 2011, just the way the promotion was operating, that they were talking less and less but i would like to think at least i would like to hope that less than a year into the promotion gabe is getting word of a major title change happening yeah just because this was a big show they wouldn't have the next one they still had one more sumo hall show that was in the plans but it was canceled because of the uh march 11th hurricane or earthquake and typhoon like yeah, the can- one that uh, that Ronan was supposed to be on, but they had to go home. Right, yeah. So, like, this was a big show. I remember the Yamato versus Doi match. I We might have talked about this off-air or on-air, but that was a incredibly, like, it was an overdue finish, and it really kind of put Yamato up to the next level. Yamato came out with the Dreamgate during the TJP match. It's just more appropriate to talk about this year. Probably, with the exception of the Koji Kenamura match, probably my favorite match of Doi's uh dreamgate run at least in japan and then the rest of the show is just whole bunch of weirdness like 2010 was really now that like we're talking about 2010 in dragon gate usa was such the shut the, the setup to blood warriors versus junction 3 at this time like you still have aki bono as the triangle gate champion as the cho zetterans going up against abdul the butcher most mochizuki was like bleeding out of that match and then the twin gate match like the reason why I asked if he was clued in there because they brought Gamma over for the show, and I thought that maybe there could have been a thing where Osaka Zenroke reclaimed the Twin Gate titles. Like there was a time where like, they vacated and they got it back, and I could have seen them have a Twin Gate match on these shows because Gam- why else would Gamma be coming over? To be frank, so it's just like an interesting. <laughs> well, because Shima liked him. Well, I mean, it's his favorite partner. 
Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, I firmly believe that Gamma booking is is Shima saying, come to America. It's going to be awesome. People are going to love you. And, you know. Uh, he, he was not completely wrong about that. No, no you're right. Uh, um, one thing real that, quick, the real quick, the Yamato versus Naruki Doi match. If you have not seen that, that's a Dragon Gate match that circulates pretty well on the internet. That is essential viewing. That, in my opinion, is a four and three quarter star match. Recommended viewing if you have not seen it. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I'm trying to look at the rest of the match. I'm. I think I said this before when we've talked about this. I need to f- rewatch this Brave Gate three-way match where Super Sisha defeats Ginky Horiguchi and Minori Sawa. Even though it's eleven minutes long, like that seems like that could be extremely my kind of thing. But it's a shame it's a triple threat match because yeah. Shisa and Horiguchi have great chemistry, and Shisa and Sawa together sounds absolutely incredible. Right. Yeah. Uh, two things before we get into the last two matches, the backstage stuff. Uh, after the Shingo Takagi Masato Yoshino match. John Moxley came out and walked Shingo Takaki to the back. That's a big thing that we'll talk about in the post show. And then in the Bucks promo, Jack Evans. I don't know when Jack Evans became a really good promo, but this was not that time because no. he said he was too rowdy for Dragon Gate Japan and ever. And he used the "and you know this man" catchphrase, which is one of the worst like catchphrases anyone's ever had. So <laughs> it was just like really awkward. And this was actually like one of the things that really struck me. Like this show now is almost exactly 10 years ago and i'm like god like i know that nick jackson just turned 20 before the show he was 19 but everyone looked like teenagers in that so that was just something that that kind of piqued my interest with that there but let's get into the uh, title match that happened that was originally going to be the big title versus title match that was not to happen it was bb hulk defeating naruki doi in 13 minutes and 13 minutes, 59 seconds for his third defense and with the uh, H Thunder. I like this a bit, but it was also something that, because this was right after the Lucha match, the crowd was obviously down. They had a dancer girl, but this time she did not try to dance along with them. She just kind of went around in a circle and clapping, which probably... Which is for the best. It's for, for the, best. the best. Absolutely for the best case. But I, it's interesting because I don't always think that they would later develop good chemistry, but at least this time, Hulk and Doi did not have excellent chemistry together. And it just was like kind of a fast uh, pace. And the other like big note I have is they got the crowd back into it and Hulk really ate shit on the Phoenix Splash Miss. Uh, what were your thoughts on this match? So it's interesting. We're on separate pages here. Um, yeah, you made the. I think we have different opinions this entire show, which is I think the first time we've been completely divergent on, on this series. Mike, we're on totally different pages here, which I find to be interesting. Other than the Jimmy Jacobs match, uh, which we both thought was bad, it's why we do a podcast together. But I feel like this is probably a more apt comparison for the King of Gate style rather than Shingo versus Yoshino. This is almost more of a G1 sprint, really, because you're looking at two of the top five guys in the company. You know, at this point, it's Hulk, it's Doi, who's coming off of that massive Dreamgate run. It's Yamato, the Dreamgate champion. It's Shima. And then, you know, I would probably say Shingo as that fifth guy. But you're looking at these guys that are on a really elevated state on the card and they come out here and work, you know, a 14 minute sprint, which quite honestly is the way that BB Hulk matches, you know, singles matches should probably be worked unless he's in the ring with Shingo because he's got a shot here to do all of his moves. They all connect well. He never overstays his welcome. He never really has to do any sort of extended selling. And Naruki Doi has such high impact offense, likely because Naruki Doi is just hitting you really hard that Hulk is able to kind of bounce around the ring 
in a way that is very entertaining. And I, and I like their chemistry together. I like their Gate of Destiny 2009 match. They would have a feud in 2014 that I really enjoyed. But for me, this is a four-star match in a really good showcase of BB Hulk at this time period working to the best of his ability. You, you know, I do like the the uh, the chemistry that they especially showed when it was during uh, Hulk's uh, Open the Dream Gate reign. It just seems like for me that maybe the crowd was something that kind of pulled me out of this. And you're absolutely right. Like this match definitely is more of the uh, King of Gate sprint style like that, especially for this here. Uh, it, it's interesting how like positions have changed in this promotion. Like this is less than a week after Doi lost the Dreamgate title. And this would be like a thing where Doi kind of isn't like in a weird place until he turns on Yoshino, you know? And that's something that I feel like is interesting. Watch this in context, but as soon as the crowd really got into this, like this match definitely set up. Like I went three and three quarters, but I think in retrospect, the more I'm thinking about it, it's probably about, it's a solid four star match and it's easily the best singles match on the show. I think I like the main event a bit more, but I thought that this was just like an interesting time. I think like this whole entire show, maybe I should do all my research like a good few days before I watch these guys because I feel like that, that maybe is what colored my opinion of the show because I did all the research and then I watched the show and I guess all the negativity from like all the buildup and that maybe rubbed off a little bit on my rewatch of this. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I have really fond memories of World One Doi. I think just because when I was first getting into the company, for whatever reason, I think there was a lot of that footage out there. Yeah. Um, which is, I guess I, sh- I should clarify. I have a lot of fond footage or fond memories of World One Doi when he's not defending the Open the Dreamgate title. <laughs> that is typically where I have an issue, with the exception of the BB Hulk match that I really, really like. And, you know, we've obviously made a Davy Richards revelation on this podcast, but the other guy that stock has been improved by doing this series is BB Hulk. Because, you know, I mean, I've talked about it almost every episode now, but. You forget just, you know, the way this guy could move and, and, and bounce is really the word. The way this guy could bounce around the ring was really, really unique. And it's just something that as he's gotten older, as he's put on weight and as he's gotten more hurt, he's unable to do. Yeah, no, I it, it's something that like like the fact that he was able to pull off a firebird splash and get the rotation so down that he was able to eat shit on it and look like, oh, wow, that definitely if this was watching this live where I got the DVD and stayed unspoiled, I think could Doi win this match? I mean, he was Dreamgate champion and, and Hulk just really ate it there. So it, that, that is kind of like the big thing. I feel like though, like when we we're watching this is man, Hulk in 2009, 2010, completely different wrestler than even 2014. Yeah. And then, you know, it's a, it's a weird five year stretch for him where, you know, he's babyface Hulk here and is kind of at the end of that run and then you go into heel BB Hulk, which he's still incredibly agile, but works a completely different style. And then, you know, he turns face again and is on the last legs of this era of BB Hulk. And then mm-hmm. once he wrestles Shingo at final gate and gets hurt really bad, then we enter, you know, I mean, again, at this time last year, we were talking about how BB Hulk should probably retire. Um, and he's since, you well, know, that was openly talked about. Yeah, um, and he's since been able to to change his style a little bit. So now, you know, I I really enjoy watching BB Hulk again. But it's you know it's been ten years since this run. It makes sense that he's not the same wrestler. But he, when he aged, I mean, he went quick and he went fast. And I'm I'm happy that he seems to at least my understanding is he's just a happier person now than he was these past few years because he was dealing with so many injuries. But 
it's been a revelation. It makes me want to go back and watch, you know, 2005, 2006, 2007 BB Hulk because it just, I, I forgot the way that he worked was so unique to himself. And, you know, maybe Mike will roll his eyes. I can't see because we're just doing the audio of this. <laughs> but I was talking before I we went on the air about Milano Collection AT and how I watched a Milano Collection match last night that really struck a chord with me on just how talented of a wrestler Milano was. And part of the way Milano just operated was that he moved around the ring like nobody else. And I think Milano was, you know, and, and I like BB Hulk. Milano at his peak was 10 times more talented than BB Hulk ever was. We just never got to see a lot of Yamato because he, or, or, or of, uh, of Milano rather, uh, because, you know, he left in 2005 in Dragon Gate and then, you know, his new Japan stuff by that point, he had accumulated injuries, but, Hulk has that same quality of just moving around the ring like nobody else. And the way he takes bumps, the way he flails around the ring, it's all so different. And it's something that I just had completely forgotten about and that I have really, really enjoyed watching. Yeah, and I was lucky to see Hulk and the new Hazard team with uh, him and Shingo at the uh, WrestleMania weekend in 2008, where it was him, them versus Sinerico. And it was such a different thing. And for a while, before really Akira Tozawa kind of became my one true pair as like my big f fandom in Dragon Gate, I was a big Hulk guy during that time period. Like he was so singular. And I think the Milano comp isn't unfair just because Milano is someone that to this day, I mean, he was a very awkward physically looking person. I mean, he was very tall. Never really had too much muscle on him until he went to the States and he discovered his love of Pringle chips. But he was just like, a, he moved so differently. But seeing uh, him in the, like in these matches just reminds you of like, even up until that Shingo match at Final Gate, like he literally destroyed himself in that match. He was such, such a different person. Even like in 2014, he wasn't doing Phoenix splashes anymore, but he still kind of had that. And then we lost it for five years now. He's found this heel world, I think, works really well for him, especially in his time of career. But yeah, no, we really were talking about the end of BB Hulk, and it's just remarkable to go back and watch this. Absolutely, and then that takes us to the main event. Shima, Gamma, and Dragon Kid representing Warriors versus the Young Bucks and Jack Evans, who Jack Evans, at this point, had not worked a Dragon Gate show since Wrestle Jam 2008, which was January of that year, and before that had not worked since Kobe World 2007. So it had been a very long time since Jack Evans had worked with the Dragon Gate crew. Yeah, and at this time, he pretty much left Dragon Gate and did AAA, and at that time, Dragon Gate didn't really have relationships in Mexico, especially how they would have later relationships again with DTU and IWRG. So, I mean, he was actually... Like, he came out and, did, and called out Ken Lundrick for attacking uh, 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 Teddy Hart. Pardon me, Teddy Hart. I've erased his mind, his name from my memory, apparently. But he, <laughs> he, he immediately called out for that because they were like a regular team at that time, at least for a while in AAA. And it was so remarkable to just like see this match. And the finish was a Meteor after a Gamma special on Matt. This match went 18 minutes. So on the main card... This was the longest match that did not involve the Lucha guys. So it gives you a sense of like how this show was like, seems like if you were there live, it would have been a very exhausting experience having to sit through a 15 minute fray and then all the production probably for Bob Saget and then the full show itself, basically a half hour for the uh, 
Kendrick and Moxley versus Jacobs and London with uh, Teddy Hart and then the Lucha mat. Like you could tell like how exhausted the crowd was, but maybe it was just me. I loved this match. Like I thought this was great. It was charming how much the crowd loved Gamma and were up for Gamma's things and even doing like the uh, water spit and a sweet angel's kiss. The crowd was all for and it just was like one of those things that seeing Evans back in a ring and facing off against people that he obviously had like such history with like Shima and Dragon Kid I felt like was a really special moment I went four stars this was my match of the show so I went four and a quarter I really liked this match I couldn't believe it was only 18 minutes I thought they had so much more left in the tank for what they could do and the finish like the finish came just after a series of moves where it didn't feel flat. But when the when the three count happened, I was disappointed to an extent of like, oh, man, I thought I thought there was going to be more. And I think if they do this match, you know, a hundred times, ninety nine times out of a hundred, they're going to hit that next level because it felt like they were on their way there. Just for whatever reason, they only went 18 minutes here. There's five guys that are really good in this match. I think Shima, Dragon Kid, the Young Bucks and Gamma really hold up their end of the bargain. It's Jack Evans who in this, I, this will sound like a knock. This will annoy some people probably more than it should, but Jack Evans was working like someone who had spent the last year and a half in AAA Cause there was a move to move precision that dragon gate just has that house style is so clean. And Jack Evans has never really had that, but you could tell he was, you know, he was working like a luchador. His stuff was just kind of wild and all over the place. And it, it didn't look right. Meshing with the young bucks who are, are so clean and just everything they do is so well-timed. And then the Shima dragon kid gamma combo. I mean, that is, that is precision. Well, when gamma's on, it's precision to the, to the highest degree. And gamma was on, on this night. So I thought five of the guys are really good here. Evans, you know, I get the idea, even though I don't think this was the initial plan. You know, Evans main eventing a DJ USA show and being in the six man tag, I understand as a draw. Like, mm-hmm. I get why Gabe did this, but he was not on the level of everybody else here. Although there was moment where one moment where he and the Young Bucks did moonsaults off the stage platform onto the floor, which even that looked like a huge drop, which makes Teddy Hart, Teddy Hart's Asai moonsault look even more insane. Yeah, yeah, and. I guess like the thing that kind of strikes me about Teddy, about not Teddy, we mentioned <laughs> Teddy once and it just Teddy gets, hard on the brain. Teddy yeah. on the brain. Yeah. Yeah. But with Jack is really for a while, like he would, he still did some ring of honor in 08 and 09, but really he was at this point purely in Mexico and he would be fully in Mexico pretty much at this point. He did a couple of pro wrestling Noah tours, which is wild to me in a lot of different ways, but you see Teddy, I said it again, you see Jack, <laughs> you see Jack Evans, and it's just like, you could tell, like, especially if you watch a lot of his Dragon Gate stuff, and like the Russell Jam stuff, and like all that, you could tell that he really, at that point, was still the same guy, you know, like, if you watched, like, some of his stuff with Typhoon, you could definitely see, like, I don't think there was much of a difference there, like, he did not necessarily grow it maybe it even took like lucha underground and him just being a full-time just obnoxious heel for him to kind of reach that level again but in like, terms of his in-ring style or how he was out of the ring oh in-ring in-ring yeah 
I feel like he was the exact same person that you watched in 2005 and to, I gotcha. 2007. Okay, yeah. And it's not a bad I, thing. It's just one of those things that, like, when you, like, watch it, you're like, this is a guy who's kind of two years behind. Yeah, it was just jarring seeing him in, in this area. When I think teaming with the Young Bucks was more of a hindrance than anything because everything sure. they did was so on point. And it's, you know, like it, it, it to your point, it's Jack Evans. You know, he's always kind of been this guy where – he does these amazing things, but they're not exactly crisp. And I just thought he was exposed to an extent in this match. And I attribute that, I think, a little bit more to had he been working Dragon Gate all of uh, 2008 and 2009. I don't think he would have had these issues, but he was in AAA instead, which is a much more lax house style. Yeah, yeah. You lose the clip that you work at. But th- this still was like, maybe it is the 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 feeling nostalgia for me but it's just one of those things that seeing him back in the ring with him and i think this is probably unless there's some matches in mexico when shima is down there like for the last time until all elite wrestling it was just kind of like hitting me at like an i don't want to say emotional spot but it definitely like resonated a little with me it's like wow this is a guy that was really the first gaijin like it was him and then like you had Roderick Strong there very shortly. And, it was Jack Evans and Chubby Roderick Strong. I mean, yeah. those were the first Americans in Dragon Gate. And then, and then Roderick Strong got kicked out of Dragon Gate. And then, uh, and, and then later you would have like people like Seidel and Pack, of course, really become like the House Gaijin. But like this was kind of like one of those things that there definitely was an alternative reality where the Bucks don't sign the TNA deal. They ended up being able to stay in Dragon Gate full-time, uh, Jack doesn't go down to Mexico, and this could have been, like, the three big gaijin at this time, but it just was not the case. Well, I mean, it could have been World 1 International. I right. mean, it, you know, this this could very easily have turned into something, because, you know, my understanding is the Bucks get along with Jack Evans all right. I mean, he's mm-hmm. in, you know, AEW now. You're right. It's a weird sliding doors deal that I, I really hadn't thought about Um of, you know, if the Bucks stay, what their future is. And then Jack Evans, just because a lot of his footage isn't circulated super well. I mean, even for the amount of archive footage that I've seen, I haven't seen a ton of Jack Evans in Drangate. So I kind of neglect him when you look at the timeline of guys in there. But Jack Evans is the first one. Yeah. And it's one of those things that I think I think it's one of those things that with how time is and how Drangate is with their footage, that is just naturally not as out there. You know, but it's one of those things that always that has always really resonated with me in some fashion that like, hey, he was there first. And I mean, he was a part of like pretty big matches. Like I remember like one of the Russell Jam matches where like he had a ladder match between Arakan and 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 uh, Akira Tozawa. It's just yeah. wild. And it is an insane match. Yeah, he was like in Battle Royals. He, he was a big part of the thing. Like he was a Triangle Gate champion. He was the first ever like Gaijin champion at a time. And that was when it was like the whole uh, blood hearts thing with BB Hulk teaming up with blood generation. So it's just like one of those things that maybe like, that's where it caught me in my thoughts a little bit with his match, but gamma ended up being the most popular person in, in Phoenix, Arizona, whoever saw that happen. And the last time other than the, the next show, the last time he was used in Dragon Gate USA. Yeah. I mean, sadly next episode will be the last time we're talking about gamma on the series even though he's still my 2020 wrestler of the year and at least in my heart and he you know at this time this is before gamma kind of took off like a decade almost (laughs) so it it, it definitely is something there after the match we had another one of shima's great great post-match things where he says is 
English is shit, but tomorrow will be a miracle show, and he wanted everyone to to, to cheer for Warriors above uh, Warriors above World One, since World One and Warriors would be the traditional six man tag, and just was like so charming. Like the crowd that was still there was really into Shima's thing, and it just like in game of the entire time is kind of chuckling in the corner. It just was like a really fun like way. I like this era of Shima, like always being able to do this, and this isn't like a comment on shima and his fluency i mean to my knowledge shima's fluent in four languages he knows a lot more english chinese and spanish than i do it's just one of those things that it was very charming that he just like let off with saying i'm sorry my english is shit but did you have a good time here and i was just like yeah shima i had a good time you yeah know i know what? it's 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 the same thing i said last episode it's not a knock on his english skills at all there's just something charming about those promos that, right you know like you just said yeah i did enjoy the show that this show maybe not so much and then <laughs> just to to round things out here real quick after the shima did you enjoy the show promo on the dvd version it cuts to a backstage promo where john moxley is standing over shingo and he says you know that shingo lost again he asks shingo do you remember who you are uh mox said he doesn't want to use the word lazy and then before he can finish a sentence shingo slaps him shingo tries to beat him up and he uh even more but John Moxley grabs Christina Von Eri uh, and holds her in front of him so Shingo can't attack. And then Mox tells him to step it up. And that is how the show ends. A Christina Von Eri sighting in 2010. In 2010. Uh, she, she'll pop up here and there in Dragon Gate USA history. This is not the last time we'll be talking about Christina Von Eri. There was something, though, about like John Moxley at this era. And it even continued through uh, 2013 that he always made comments about how women smelled and like how his mom's. You smell like, do you remember like the promo where he said like, you smell like my mom's purse? Do you remember him saying that? I, I don't remember that specific promo. There's stuff with Moxley that I'm, that will come up that yeah. I, do, I don't know how it will age. I think my, my gauge of just like what really bothers me in terms of, you know, for our wrestling performances, whatever, that maybe doesn't bother me just because I'm able to take a step back from reality. There's some Moxley stuff, though, that I'm very curious to see how it comes across in 2020 and pulling Christina Von Eri in front of a Shingo Takagi who is mid-strike is certainly uh, uh, foreshadowing the future of John Moxley's character. Yeah, 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 it is. And the thing that's kind of surprised me is I thought by this time Kamikaze USA was a thing. And I thought they had – yes, I thought they had branded by this point, and they had not. Yeah, but it's definitely – you can see uh, Moxley is with Shingo. Uh, Akuma was not on this weekend of shows, but he obviously is paired up with Yamato. So it does seem like that there is some genesis there, but I do know that at least by the first year show, they are in full stride. So that does yes. it for Ultimate Gate 2010. It was a show. It was their first WrestleMania show. And, you know, WrestleMania weekend episodes of this, I feel like, are going to be naturally a lot longer just because of all the stuff that kind of goes on with this. But we had to take time to talk about the end of Davy Richards and Dragon Gate USA, the uh, current exit of the Young Bucks, and kind of just how expectations changed very quickly for Dragon Gate USA, especially coming out of this Chicago show. And I'm just, like, thinking about how how frustrating it must have been. Like, over a period of a week, it seems like they do the show. Or, or first, Gabe talks with uh, uh, Gabe talks with uh, Davey. Says, Davey says, I'm done after this show. 
they were able to like work through the show and think it's going forward. They announce Hulk versus Davy, and then within two days, it's it's out of the picture. That's just like a wild just frame of events there. It's weird to think that the company was already resetting at this point. Uh, it seems like, especially in Gabe Sapolsky's post ROH ventures, he's always in the middle of a reset. Mm-hmm. And it's crazy to think that four, really five shows into the DG USA run, he has to completely change uh, his long term booking plans. Real quick, just my overall thoughts on Ultimate Gate. Yeah. It is a. It is a frustrating show to watch. It is my least favorite of the bunch we've seen. I like the main event. I like the semi-main event. I think those are worth going out of your way. The undercard, you know, I seem to be a little bit higher on the Chikara second gun match, but even then, it's a it's a frustrating undercard. It's a frustrating show. It just seems like it had potential to be something greater. And unfortunately, it was not that, which, you know, perhaps that's Dragon Gate USA summed up right there. Yeah, yeah. I... It's interesting because I feel like I was really high on TJP versus Yamato. You weren't. You were a lot higher on the Chikarasaki Gun versus Warriors tag. But really, it's the the last two matches, it, or the last three matches, if you are someone who really likes Shingo, are the ones to watch on this show, I would say. It, according to what your mileage is on Shingo and Masato Yoshino, you can watch that that match. But really, the last two matches are the two essential watches here. And yeah, this is my least favorite show so far. And... I, I feel like that it just kind of was bound to do this from like what the card could have been. And if somehow someone wants to slide in and tell us what the original Ultimate Gate 2010 card was supposed to be, I would love to hear it because I feel like that we're pretty close in our idea of that we were going to have the Davey-Hulk match, obviously, Speed Muscle versus Young Bucks. And then from there, who knows? So I've been interested. Oh, I would love to know what this, ma- what this show is supposed to be on paper. Mike, that's all I've got. You can follow me on Twitter at underscore in your case. You can follow the podcast account at Open Voicegate. I've had some time recently to go back to the DG archives and and watch some stuff that I either haven't seen before or that I haven't seen in a long time. So I'll probably be have I'll probably be having some classic content on the Twitter feed in the next few weeks. And that's all I've got. You know where to find me. Yeah, I'm at Fujiheya. I've been thinking about maybe going back and trying to watch because i remember 2007 being a big year and i feel like i should i feel like i would like 2007 so i think i might go back and watch 2007 so you might be watching some tj some t2p and milano i might be watching like the rise and fall of new hazard going into blood or going into real hazard and the rise of world one that seems to be what my mind is scratching for right now but that's going to do it so for a case i'm mike and we'll catch you next time